Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. And thanks everybody for joining us. First, I want to give a real quick update on COVID-19. Uh, and I'm gonna make this brief because everybody's watching the news these days, but the highlights are that we've seen a spike in the South, the Southwest in California. And the Southwest is really interesting because in Arizona, they're seeing a very high positivity rate of you know all the people who get a swab test in the nose, uh, high percentage of those are coming back positive. And that high percentage of positive tests predicts that there'll be more Ill illness weeks down the road because of community and family spread that uh, happens after many, many people become positive. Uh, we heard from Moderna this week, a manufacturer uh, of a potential vaccine, and they just concluded a, a second round of uh, study on healthy volunteers and found that those volunteers developed a good level of neutralizing antibodies and binding antibodies. And in neutralizing antibodies are important because those are the antibodies that can actually attack the virus and neutralize it, make it ineffective in causing infection. Um, the third thing which I thought was really interesting is Dr. Redfield, the uh, director of the CDC, came out with a statement and said, if everybody did the three things that you need to do, masking, social distancing, and good hygiene, and that, that's everybody did it we would see a major decline in the pandemic in as little as four to six weeks. Think about that. You know, the ability to turn this thing around is up to each individual American. Four to six weeks if everybody did the right thing. Um, we are seeing less people die because of the advances in care of COVID patients, uh, because of remdesivir, because of the effect of that steroid dexamethasone, which has been shown to be effective in serious cases. So we're seeing a lower death rate, but as more people, more and more people get the infection, that means that more, the number of deaths is gonna go up. So that's kind of a wrap up. We'll be happy to answer any questions that you have about COVID during the Q&A section. But I wanted to introduce Dr. Duffy, who is really an expert on primary care. And one quick question that we may be asked, why is the zero card that deals mostly with secondary care, specialty care, why are we so interested in primary care? Well, our goal is for employers to reduce their healthcare spend and get better value for their healthcare. And all secondary care is based on a platform, an underpinning of primary care. If you don't have good primary care, all your secondary care is going to suffer. You'll have more secondary care, it'll be more expensive, and there'll clearly be more ways. The primary care doctor, is really the key to helping constrain healthcare costs and improving quality. So with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Daniel Duffy, whom I've known for many years and I'm privileged to call a friend. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became so interested in primary care? Daniel? Hi, Stan. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here today uh, on this webinar. Um, <clears throat> right out of medical school, I was interested in primary care, but it didn't exist back then when the earth was cooling in the late 60s. 
Uh, and uh, in fact, the year I graduated from medical school, they had eliminated general practice as a field. And uh, so I pursued the uh, field of internal medicine. Two years into my residency, family practice was invented and I was too far committed uh, to change fields. Uh, so my whole career has been in internal medicine, but with a focus on the primary care aspects of internal medicine, not the specialty parts. Uh, I've been in, was uh, active uh, in the Tulsa community for a long time and then went to Philadelphia for 10 years and served as executive vice president of the American Board of Internal Medicine, where I met a colleague that has been on this uh, show uh, recently, Daniel Wolf, Daniel Wolfson, and he and I worked together for 10 years there. When I came back to Tulsa, I was now convinced that primary care was an absolute essential platform for high quality care in the United States. And it was being decimated, absolutely decimated by the funding policies and uh, uh, by uh, actually health system policies uh, were uh, making it very difficult to attract people into primary care. And we had an opportunity to work on several innovative payment structures comprehensive primary care initiative being one, and a whole series of initiatives in the Tulsa community that advanced and transformed primary care. Tell us, uh, you know, we've talked about that primary care initiative, the comprehensive primary care. Can you give us a 60 second description of what it was and what it accomplished in your mind yeah. that was transformative? Yeah, this was a part of the comprehensive, uh, of the, uh, CMS innovation system or project organization that uh, was charged with the um, testing out various quality or pay for quality programs. So bundled payments was a part of it. But the big part was this comprehensive primary care initiatives. We called it uh, uh, C P P CPCI. And it um, initially, we fought for that here in Tulsa. In fact, I remember the night before uh, the, uh, the application was due, being on the phone with the major payers in the region saying, you have to do this. You just have to do this. This is one of the biggest things that's going to happen uh, in, in our careers. So what it did is it enrolled about 65 practices in Northeast Oklahoma gave them additional payment to do some things that make primary care advanced primary care. And the main thing in that is improving their health tech information technology, permitting them to be able to look at the measures of their quality of care, and most importantly, introduced care management nurses. We have lost nurses in primary care practices somewhere in the 70s and 80s as a cost-cutting measure and they were introduced and it made all the difference. What did nurses do in the practice that made such a difference? Nurses are highly trained, sophisticated uh, medical personnel who uh, understand medications, understand medication interactions, but their whole approach to healthcare is not treating a disease, but treating a patient. And they are particularly good at treating patients who have chronic illnesses, those high intensity, high cost patients. And what we learned through this particular project and others like it, is that when you put a nurse in a practice with a physician 
the physician's life improves in that he can continue to do what he does best or she does best, which, <coughs> which is make diagnoses and create unique treatment plans. The nurse can then manage these uh, patients who require a lot of follow-up, a lot of assistance, a lot of patient education. It, it, it changes the fabric of primary care completely. One of the things that, you know, I always saw that differentiated advanced primary care from regular primary care is in advanced primary care, your doctor's office is thinking about you when you're not there. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I remember nurses would be contacting patients, you know, kind of out of the blue. You know, why are you calling me? I'm not sick. Well, I'm calling you because it's time for you to get this, or I wanted to be sure that you had good follow-up. Or I think the amazing thing was that the doctor's offices would call the patients like right after they got to the emergency room and, you know, would say, you know, what happened? Can we see you? And I remember one example where they actually called a patient who was sitting in the emergency room waiting to be seen uh, because they had this electronic hookup, you know, between the hospital, the emergency room, and their office. They kind of always knew where their patient was. And it seemed remarkable to me that a doctor's office would be reaching out to you instead of the other way. You're right on. Uh, and those are the, uh, the aspects of advanced primary care that uh, um, payers really need to pay attention to. One is, do they have advanced technology to be able to track where their patients are, get in touch with their patients, and let their patients get in touch with them through multiple modalities of access, a patient portal, uh, and, and having staff within the practice to actually do this thing that you talked about, which happened in the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative in Northeastern Oklahoma regularly. That made a huge difference. Sure. The, the uh, uh, second thing that they have are these additional personnel. There are two types of people uh, and that doesn't mean they have to be new individuals. They can be new roles in the practice that are essential in advanced primary care. One is a care coordinator or a care manager or uh, a nursing care manager. This can doesn't have to be an RN, but it's best that it be someone with advanced experience or training. The second new per role is what we've been calling an um, the, the practice analytics specialist, the, somebody who is managing the data and is able to actually generate quality measures is actually able to keep the registries of these high utilization patients up to date and is making sure the greatest newest innovations in the electronic health record are in place to, to uh, uh, make the uh, practice workflow as efficient as possible. Those those things add, added to a smart primary care clinician uh, really is advanced primary care. Sorry, Stan. How did, how did uh, Northeastern Oklahoma make out in that project? Well, I, you know, it's amazing. I've slept since we, I saw the final results, but I was looking at a slide the other day and it said it added $100 million to the Northeast Oklahoma practice of medicine and saved, now that, the, the thing that's important about that number is that comes from savings from Medicare that resulted from this CPCI project. So that 100 million went into the practices and the, and the health systems of Northeastern Oklahoma to, to create this advanced primary care. 
And it came all out of savings, meeting the costs of the program had been paid by Medicare uh, in order to pay that out. So instead of the practices getting more money because they had to tr treat sicker people, they got money from keeping people from getting sicker. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. wow. Hey, Jerry, any questions coming in? Yes, sir. We've had several. Let's start with this one. This is anonymous from Tulsa. It says, I oversee benefits for a small self-insured company. We do not get to see our financial performance data from our carrier every quarter. So I have no idea how to tell whether we are getting advanced primary care or even good primary care. What can I do? Daniel? Whoa, what an important question. As I said at the beginning, advanced primary care, one of the linchpins of it is in fact uh, data-driven quality improvement. Uh, the, and that the practice needs to have that data, which practices don't have, they have no idea. Uh, and the payers don't generally provide that data. Uh, there's some movements to make it happen. A uh, bottom line here is that is the biggest nut to crack in, uh, uh, in, in, in advanced primary care. Uh, and, and we have been working on that in several of the projects that I've overseen over the past five years. And the single biggest barrier to it is the terrible um, disorganization of uh, financial payment data, uh, clinical data, and uh, uh, outcomes data. We, we just have, they're all in different places, run by different people who think they own the data when in fact it all relates to what you all are interested in is what am I getting for the money I'm, I'm putting in. So is there an easy solution to it? We've been working on it for over 10 years and have some good, good, good approaches, but I think it's only until the employers begin to demand this kind of accountability that we're gonna get anywhere. I, I am not very uh, enthusiastic that clinicians are gonna be able to do this. They want the data too. Do you think employers should be able to make healthcare decisions based on, you know, quality and cost, you know, to compare hospital A to hospital B or clinic A to clinic B? Absolutely. I mean, is that ever going to be possible? Absolutely. Yeah. I, is it going to be possible? I don't know, given the uh, uh, national uh, financing and, and uh, regulation uh, situation that we're in right at the moment, it certainly is impossible right now. Uh, clearly, if our biggest payer, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, actually took this on, it might work. Uh, there was, in the prior, prior administration, movement in that direction. Uh, but we, we honestly can't deliver high quality care uh, without it. Jerry? All right, uh, another question, and this is one that's been on my mind a lot as well, because we're always, we're all obviously seeing a transformation in the way that the world works today, but this is, this is a really good one. Uh, will I get to see my doctor in person again, or are e-visits going to be a permanent way of seeing my doctor? That's a great question, really a great question. Um, th this, the story on this one is mixed, uh, and the, whoever asked that question is obviously a person who, <coughs> who, who really appreciates um, hands-on, face-to-face eye contact 
and, and touch as a part of the doctor-patient experience. And what we're finding is that there are quite a few patients, maybe over half, who fall into that category. Uh, there are also some clinicians who feel that the uh, Zoom or video uh, interaction is unfulfilling and not as diagnostically uh, robust as seeing a person in, per in person. In some areas, uh, believe it or not, in psychotherapy and psychology and uh, those areas, it's working really very well. In fact, some of the psychiatrists are uh, concerned that they may never see patients face-to-face -face again. Uh, uh, the, when it comes to primary care, it's gonna be a mixed bag. Uh, people need to be seen maybe for some acute illnesses, not the minor ones, but the things that are, are more troubling, that really is more than likely going to require a face-to-face, -face, and yes, we'll be having those. Quite frankly, the chronic illness management and the checking in and the checking up is done very efficiently uh, with uh, telemedicine, and, and those nurse visits are done very efficiently with tele telemedicine, and many patients really like that because they don't like the once-a-month visit to the clinician when not a whole lot happens. Bottom line, yeah, we're gonna have a mixture of both and I think it's gonna be good. Fantastic. Stan, do you have anything to uh, add to that? Uh, not other than I had my own personal e-visit the other day and I really liked not getting in the car, not parking, not taking the elevator, not waiting in the waiting room. I had to wait at home, which is easy when you have a computer in front of you. Is <laughs> that always YouTube? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. All right. Another question came to us. It says, what do you think about the healthcare screening programs that some employers have in their wellness activities? The kind where you get asked some questions about unhealthy habits and get a lot of lab tests. Isn't that sort of advanced care? Uh, part of that is advanced care and part of it is probably not or is not. So we, we have really good science on what is useful in the screening uh, and assessment. And what I can tell you is that 20 lab tests done as a screening test means that one of them is gonna be abnormal. That's very dangerous because that abnormal test is more than likely in a healthy young person to be a false abnormal or a false test, false positive. And therefore, that's going to require chasing down why is that, is it false or is it true? And that's where you're spending the money needlessly, as, as, is, as is everybody. So what we want to do when it comes to lab testing and any kind of imaging is want to make sure that we are on solid ground, that this particular patient's demography, their age and risk factors, make it a high probability that if the test is positive, it's going to be a true positive and we're going to go forward. And that if it's negative, we can stop and, and not do that. On the other hand, that means that these annual visits exist for, or the, the screening checkup visits exist for determining things that we do not have any laboratory tests for right now. And that requires some questions about our, our mental health and our behavioral health, and maybe a couple symptoms. Uh, uh, and, and the things that we're beginning, and we're launching a study right now with the Department of Mental Health here in Oklahoma, uh, to uh, uh, do annual testing for everybody in primary care for depression, 
for uh, alcohol use disorder, for drug use disorder, for tobacco use disorder. We've been doing that for a long time. Uh, and when those turn up, we're not trying to find the people who need alcohol uh, abuse treatment uh, as much as we want to use that as an opportunity to let people know that there are risky and hazardous levels of alcohol and drug use, including marijuana, uh, that uh, really need to be looked at as a risk for future health problems. By the same token, we know the people that we should be testing for prediabetes and, and uh, uh, simply by doing a weight and a belly measurement uh, the, and those are the people that we actually do want to be very aggressive in, in, in helping prevent uh, diabetes. Smoking uh, in and of itself, checking for it, is going to reduce the subsequent upstream costs enormously. Did that get at your question, Jerry? I think so. Thank you very much for, for, um, for your uh, response. Um, another question came in. I think this one's going to be uh, kind of roll off the, the e-visit uh, conversation earlier, but it says primary care docs seem to be very busy. Sometimes it's hard to talk about more than one problem at a visit, and I can't keep taking time off to keep going back to the doctor. Any ideas? Boy, you, you, this is my favorite topic of all, because if you want to know whether you have an advanced primary care practice, you can tell right away by a clinician who does not do what you just said. So I've, I've, I've talked to many clinicians over the years who will say, when patient comes in with a laundry list of things that, that are wrong with them, I say one problem, Pick the most important one and we'll deal with that today and then you can come back for the others. That to me is this, the exact example of non-advanced primary care. It may be that on that particular date, that pro the problem that the patient has is so important that it may take that whole visit for it and that you can follow up. But the pr advanced primary care is based on a total comprehensive assessment of the patient's health. And that requires some time in a, and, and requires some instruments, not necessarily lab tests and x-rays, but some questionnaires that are standardized and efficient and a conversation with the patient. And one of the things that some of the, what I call advanced primary care practitioners are finding useful on Zoom is they can ask the patient to take that camera and go show me your, show me your room, show me your house. And they're doing home visits in a way that never have been able to be done in, in an efficient and effective uh, 15 or 20 minute visit. So bottom line is if you have a practice practitioner or a clinician that only has time for one problem, they're practicing urgent care. Don't pay for primary care. That is not, not, not primary care. Primary care is comprehensive and it is age and gender based, and it is based on a thorough understanding of the patient's biopsychosocial uh, and spiritual world, uh, because all of those are elements in good health. And you know that that's interesting. You you mentioned that because there's a lot of talk now about social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. You know, nutrition, safety, shelter, economics, and so forth as being a real big determinant on how people do. What, you know, what is a physician's responsibility? What's a clinic's responsibility 
because so often, you know, doctors, you know, if you got a job and you got a health insurance, we figured you can afford, you know, healthcare. Can you elucidate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure can. And and that's again a, a place where partnership between the employer and the primary care practices can really, really pay off. Um, we've done a lot of work with looking at the social determinants of health. Uh, at, at OU, we have been measuring. Uh, we've asked a series of, I think, 15 questions that get at, do, do the patients have um, food insecurity? Do they have domestic violence in their house? Uh, we've added to it the adverse childhood experiences. Have they had um, uh, disruptive childhoods, divorce in the family, incarceration, drug, drug abuse, and so on? So that we have a pretty good picture of what's going on in that patient's environment, neighborhood, uh, their income, uh, and so on. But that's about as far as it can go because primary care practices are ill-equipped to solve those social problems. Right. On the other hand, there are enormous numbers of agencies, both governmental and private and, and faith-based, that are able to help, help with those. And they often go unused because the patients who need them aren't connected to it. So what we're realizing now is advanced primary care also has as a function, being aware of the psychosocial aspects of the patient, having that as part of the health problems that the patient may have, and a tight link to the services within the community uh, that, uh, that the patient can get help for. And quite frankly, Stan, that, that's an area that is at the forefront of research right at the moment in how to make that happen. The assumption is if you have a good paying job, you don't have any of those problems. That is absolute nonsense. Jerry, any? Uh, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm, I'm just looking, there's a question about Dr. Fauci here. Uh, you wanna take that question? You know what, Stan, I haven't seen it pop up on my side. Can you read that and potentially yeah, I see. Um, we're, we're having a little bit of technical uh, feedback here. I hope everybody can hear it. But anyway, it says, uh, we're seeing a lot of heat put on Dr. F Anthony Fauci as an infectious disease expert. Did you get it wrong or did you get it right? If you were in his shoes, what would you do the same or different? Dr. Fauci runs every day and I have trouble being in his shoes. But, you know, it's really interesting. Dr. Fauci wasn't right at the beginning, knowing what we know today. Keep in mind that, you know, 150 years ago, bloodletting was the appropriate treatment for a lot of conditions until we learn more. I think Dr. Fauci was right at the time. As we learn more, Dr. Fauci has, has updated his advice and his concepts. And I think that's what's terrifically important when you're dealing with a disease nobody has seen before for which there's no paradigm, a disease that's highly contagious before people get sick. Um, I think he did a reasonable job and to go back to January or February and say, well, in retrospect, some of those things weren't right. I don't think that's entirely fair. Well, thank you, Stan. Um, well, we sincerely hope that having access to, to our experts in the field has been a valuable resource as we continue to navigate the impacts of COVID-19. Um, for any information or for additional information, including a chat capability, 
where any question can be answered live, please visit thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. Let me repeat, thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. On behalf of Dr. Stan Swartz and our special guest, Dr. Daniel Duffy and myself, Jerry Wilkins, the Director of Sales at the Zero Card, we sincerely thank you and hope to see you again in two weeks at the same time, the same place. Take care and stay healthy. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.